Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful to be here to sing these songs to you. What doctrine there is in them. You have blessed us so mightily. And we voluntarily want to support this ministry in your word. We don't do it from compulsion indeed. We do it as to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, we have two new things on the bulletin you may have noticed. One is the memory verse. We are weak in bibliology and we're going to try to remedy that. Uh, Strong in theology, but we don't know the address. And so we're going to start learning the address of important verses. We're going to have a new memory verse each month. That means you have four weeks to memorize this verse. Actually, less this time because I didn't start it at the beginning. So by the end of the year, you'll have 12 memory verses memorized, hopefully. Uh, This was an afterthought, putting it in here. I forgot to put it on the front. It's going to be on the front next time. And after we, after one verse, uh, excuse me, one month is completed, we'll have a new one, and then I'm going to have the address of the verse that you've already memorized until we have 12 of them. We'll see how that works. Also, you see the note that we have a new parking area uh, right outside in the front. It's not poured yet, but it will be by next weekend, by next Sunday, hopefully. And that is for people who are handicapped, but you don't have to have a handicap sticker. If you have problems uh, getting up the steps, then this parking place up here in the front is for you. It's for not anyone else. It's just, we'll probably, we are going to, where's Charlie? We are going to put the handicap place uh, signs there, but you don't have to have a handicap sticker to park there. If you struggle coming up the steps, then you can park there. And I think we're going to put some stripes in there so you can kind of figure out how what the angle is. Also, I was noticing this morning that um, nobody's using the back door there. Everybody's all congested here in the front. And so we need to get used to coming through that door. If you're coming from the parking lot in that back area, actually it's closer and it's easier to go up those bigger steps They're not as high, they're easier to manage, and you can come in the back door. So we'll see what happens after a while. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of naming any unconfessed sins to God, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit if that is necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're very thankful for who and what you are and for your mighty word and for giving us the opportunity to be here again, to focus on your word. We pray that you will help us to concentrate so that it can reform us into the image of your son, that what we learn will sink deep into our long-term memory so that it will be an encouragement to us and we will be able to help and exhort others. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. While you're doing that, I'm going to bring up a map. We're in the last section of Joshua chapter 8. It has to do with Joshua deciding to do something that, humanly speaking, looks absolutely ridiculous. It's Joshua chapter 8 verse 30. I think we've already read verses 30 through 38. I'll just summarize as to what is going on here. A map will be helpful, so I'll bring up a map. The Israelites had just had a great victory over Ai. They had already conquered Jericho. Their momentum was moving forward, and anyone that knows, whether it's in sports or in the military... When you have that momentum going forward, you want to keep that momentum going. And Joshua did something, humanly speaking, that was absurd. Rather than take the next city while the striking while the iron was hot, he goes 25 miles from Ai uh, to a couple of mountaintops there close to Shechem, and he's going to worship. He's going to build an altar He's going to uh, in, recite the entire law and he's going to uh, paint it on the rocks. And this is going to take no telling how long. Militarily speaking, this was the last thing you would do. And this isn't the first time that Joshua did this. Remember when they crossed the river and they had just gotten to the other side? There were mountains on each side of them. They didn't have any room to maneuver. The water was to their back. That's a very vulnerable spot. And you would think this is when you want to move out and take care of business. And what did he do? He shut down right there and really incapacitated uh, most of his soldiers because he was obeying a command that they were to be circumcised. And it took some time for them to recover. And again, militarily speaking, humanly speaking, you would think, why would anyone do such a thing? Well, the reason was because God had commanded him to do it. And again, we have a command from God for him to go to this particular place and to build an altar in a particular fashion. And what Joshua is doing is obeying this mandate. And we realize that this is, <laughs> this is humanly speaking, just outrageous because it, it, it broke the momentum, you would think, with the victories that they were winning, it gave the enemy a chance to regroup and to strike. And this is exactly what we see happens in chapter 9, verse 1. But we're not at chapter 9, verse 1 yet. Here's the map, and you can. this is where they, they were in Shittim. They crossed the Jordan River under miraculous circumstances. They take the city of Jericho. You can notice this arrow kind of goes around it because they circle the city. We studied that. Then they go to Ai after a hiccup. You remember what the hiccup was. Uh, they didn't consult God. They were going to take care of this one on their own. And they got decisively defeated. Then they got right with God. They asked 
God how to accomplish this. So they strike Ai here, and they are going to, and they of course defeated it. Now you would think that they would turn south, and they are going to go south in a bit, but they would probably turn south and go probably to Kerbet uh, Nasia or Gibeon here. That's what you would think they were going to do, but they don't. They turn north, kind of northwest, and they go from Ai 25 miles up here to Shechem. And here is Mount Ebal and uh, Mount uh, Gerim, and they're going to worship there. So that's the kind of the logistics of what we're seeing. Uh, what we want to do now is get some of the details with regards to what is going to go on there. And so we'll go in our Bibles to chapter 8. And <clears throat> let's see where we want to pick it up here. I guess verse 30. We'll just kind of scan a little bit. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Now, Mount Ebal was that mountain close to uh, Shechem, where they were going to worship. Mount Ebal, Ebal means stony. It's a mountain 3,076 feet above the level of the sea and 1,200 feet above the level of the valley on the north side. That is the north side of Shechem. And there, we're going to have six tribes that are going to go to Mount Ebal, and they're going to do a particular thing. And then we're going to have another six tribes that are going to go to Mount Gerizim. And it, by the way, Mount Gerizim is in Samaria also, about 3,000 feet above the sea level. And the summits of these mountains are about two miles from each other. That's the summits. So when you get the... By the time they come down, there, there's not much distance between these two mountains. And so that's, this is where, uh, between these are where, is where Joshua is going to build this altar. And he gives a little bit of information here, verse 33. And all the elders with, all Israel with their elders and officers and their judges we're standing on both sides uh, of the ark before the Lord. The, the strangers as well as natives. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses had commanded at the first to bless the people. And then afterwards he read all the words of the law. The blessing and the curse according to that which is written in the book of the law. So it's talking about what was written in Israel, uh, in the, uh, by Moses and the commandment and so forth. So uh, what we want to do is turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11. See, he is obeying a command that was given in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, by the way, is right before Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting with verse 26. 
verse 26. Deuteronomy 11:26. Moses is instructing. He says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen, underline that. That's the problem so many times today is people hear the words, but they're not listening. So they're going to, they have a choice. They can receive blessing if they listen to the commandment of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse if you do not listen. And there you have the conditions. If you do not listen to the commandment of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. And it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. So what he's doing is this is instructions way before they are actually crossing the river and taking the land. But this is commandment that they are to do this. We don't have the exact time when they were to do it, but they're giving the instructions as to where to do it and how to do it. It's going to be up to Joshua, the leader of the people, to decide when to do it. And this is the, the general uh, layout of it. And... When it says the place, the cursing on Mount Gerizim, uh, I mean the blessing on Mount Gerizim, the curse on Mount Ebal, we're going to see that they, they take these six tribes, one on, uh, six on Mount Gerizim, six on Mount Ebal, and they are going to demonstrate that God's, God's promises to us are twofold. Most people don't know what the blessings are or the cursing. There are a lot of believers, or at least a relatively large amount of believers, that know something about the blessing promises. Very few know the blessings and the cursing. So what this is doing is, is, is pulling the rug out from under those that think that they can be neutral, that they can just... Uh, uh, I don't want to get too involved in church. I don't want to get too involved in the Word. But I don't want to be a hellion either. I'm going to be somewhere kind of in between. And so what this is doing is saying, no, you don't have that. You are either going to receive blessing or you're going to receive cursing from God. And what did it say already that is going to be one of the qualifications or one of the reasons that you're going to get blessings or cursing? If you listen or not. And the listen doesn't mean, yeah, I heard it. It's hearing it and obeying it. That's what we see here. So Joshua is making a big deal. Well, actually, Joshua isn't. Moses started it, making a big deal about this. And the Lord is the one that's prompting uh, Moses to do it. Verse 30. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 30. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way forward to the sunset in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oaks of Morah. 
For you are about to cross the Jordan to go into the promised land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and live in it. And you shall be careful to do all the statutes and judgments which I am setting before you today. So this is what the Israelites, now that they're in the land, they've crossed the river, they're going to obey this command. So spiritually speaking, Joshua is exactly right on target. And the world, the military leaders, and human viewpoint would say he's insane. And that's that's the individual aspect of a believer's life. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're executing the Christian way of life, you're learning and growing, there are going to be people who look at you and they're going to think, boy, that person is odd, that is strange. Why would they do that? Because your life should not pattern the life of the mediocre believer nor the unbeliever. And we're going to see as we go through, if you are living that type of life, people take note. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Have a few more bits of the puzzle. And what we see in verses, I don't know, 1 through... Um, four is the gen- general information about they are to cross the land and uh, they shall uh, take uh, abide by the law, remember the law. By the time you get to verse 5, it says, Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God out of uncut stones and you shall offer offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. Now this, this is just more detail as to how they are to observe this commandment that is given to them. Now why did they not, why were they not allowed to have any tool, any, any, anything, any work done on the stones that they built an altar to God? In the ancient world, God's altar, the ones that did it right, looked much differently than pagan altars because the pagan gods had altars also. But the pagan gods would use the iron tool. They, they would use a chisel and a hammer and they would make images on these altars and they would have steps going up and it reeked of idolatry for one thing. I don't know how long it was. I guess it was over 30 years ago. Carrie and I went down to um, Cancun, and they had an excursion going down to Chichen Itza. Don't ask me how to spell that. I can barely say it. Anyway, we went down there, and there was these big pyramids. And, oh, it was, it was right on the sea, right on the water. And the, the water was beautiful, green-colored. And they had this one, you go up there, I don't know how many steps there it was. It was probably, I don't know, at least three or four stories tall and it just had the steps going all the way up there. And they had on the sides of it and uh, just all around this area were um, carvings that looked like gargoyles. You know what a gargoyle is? The older people probably know, but I don't know about the younger. Uh, in, uh, in the older architecture, they would have animals that would be perched up and looking down. 
uh, our creatures, I should say. Most of the time, they were pretty grotesque looking. And this is the way it was at Chichen Nietzsche. This was a pagan altar, pagan type of things. And there was a lot of work done on them, and they were preserved all the way to this time. But it gave you an eerie feeling. And some of them were pretty, had some explicit sexual content to it. And they were, they'd had big old tusks coming out and all this type of thing. Well, in God's, for as far as his altar was concerned, he didn't want anything done to it with, as far as chiseling on it or anything because he didn't want it to be mistaken or even resemble the pagan altars that spoke of idolatry. But even moreover than that, it would break the symbolism there because when an animal was sacrificed on, these, on the altar to God, it was an innocent animal. There was, no, there was no merit in this whatsoever. It is depicting the grace of God. And if man had any work done on it, it would be like, well, yeah, we need to sacrifice the animal, but look how pretty this work is on the stones here. It would be like man producing some type of work that would merit salvation. That's a couple of the reasons why we have the injunction here not to put a chisel to it. And then we have in verse 7, And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Most of the, the, the altars were only about a waist high. And they would sacrifice the animal there. They would kill it, and then they would put a fire under it. They would roast it. Uh, it would be like a big, huge outdoor pit, like a barbecue pit or something. So it, it, it really accomplished two things. It was obeying God, and the fire... You remember what the fire always represents when the animal was going to be consumed? It was judgment. Everything was speaking of Christ's work for us on the cross. But then once all that was already done, well, we're not going to let all this good meat go to waste. They would go ahead and cook it, and they would have a feast. They would celebrate. This is what the altar uh, was all about. So verse 8, And she'll write on the stones all these words of the law very distinctly. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen. You know I'm going to tell you. Underline that one too. How many times are we having this? Be silent and listen. You can't listen if you're talking. We have sterling behavior in this assembly. Uh, there's no talking. There's no looking around. There's no giggling. There's no passing a note. Uh, when I, last time I went on vacation, it was up in Colorado, and I visited this church. And it said it was a Bible church. And I thought, well, we're okay there. <laughs> the manners were appalling. And before it was over with, everybody was gyrating, raising their hands. and They didn't speak in tongues, but I think they did by the time we left. Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. See, this is when they were taken out of Egypt. They were given the law. They are assuming a nationhood here. They're becoming a people in their own right. This is what was in the process of happening. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do the commandments and His statutes which I command you today. 
Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. These are the six tribes. He's giving them exact, explicit instructions. Those tribes are going to stand on the mountain, Gerizim, which is depicting blessing. And for the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So you have six tribes on each. He is making it God, that is God. God gave Moses these instructions as vivid as he possibly could have. Actually, literally, dividing the people spatially. Six tribes here, six tribes here. This is cursing. This is blessing. He is emphatic about these people going into enemy territory and their only hope to survive, not only survive but indeed be victorious, was to listen and obey because they couldn't put it in neutral. They were going to receive cursing or blessing, and that is the same for us. That's one of the, one of the principles, one of the messages we're going to leave with today is that I cannot coast. I either receive blessings or curses. There's nothing in between. And it's your attitude towards God and His Word that is to determine what you're going to have in your life. I would say that's pretty important, wouldn't you? God thought it was important. No doubt in eternity past, when He decided how everything was going to be, and after the world's world was restored in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, these mountains happened to pop up right at the same place, two miles apart, just exactly where He wanted them. For much later, you would have this command given, and then even a little later than that, it's going to be fulfilled. Verse 14. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol. Now, I don't remember if we did this last time. Maybe we did. But uh, verses 15 through 26, look at the first word in every one of those verses. That's a lot of cursing. What I did is underline it. You, you all do it. It kind of stands out. Underline each one of those cursed, cursed, cursed. I'll just 15 cursed, 16 cursed, 17 cursed, 18 cursed, 19 cursed, 20 cursed, 21 cursed. 22 cursed, 23 cursed, 24 cursed, 25 cursed, and 26 cursed. God was making a point. Now, I would like for you, when you get home or sometime, read what all these cursings are about. I'm not going to take the time to do it right now. Now, in verse tw- uh, chapter 28, look what it says. Now, it shall be if you will what? Diligently... Obey. And that's one you want to underline. See, we're getting the, the meat out of this. If you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. Look, what is, we see something in this verse. The blessings are going to overtake you. These these people were not seeking to get blessings from God. They were seeking to obey God. 
They were seeking to please God. And when you do that, the blessings will overtake you. You see what I'm talking about? They're just going to come upon you. They're going to be there. Now look what it says in verse 3. Verse 3 says blessed, 4 says blessed, 5 says blessed, 6 says blessed. And then all the way as you go through this, you see all these blessings up until verse 15. Verse 12 says at the last, you shall, if you are doing what you are supposed to do by obeying me and listening to me, you shall be a nation that is going to lend to other nations, but you shall not borrow. So, if a nation is being blessed by God, if they're being obedient to God, they can expect to have enough prosperity in their finance to loan to other, other nations. <laughs> what happened to us? <laughs> I just thought I'd point that out in passing. Okay. Um, by the way, in verse 2, I just kind of went past this quickly and you... I think I pointed this out already, but verse 2 says, So it shall be on the day when you shall cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord has given you, you shall, go, uh, you shall set up for yourself the large stones. Uh, in, in other words, it sounds like the day that they passed over the, across the Jordan, they were to start heading to Mount Gerizim and do this. That's not the... The, the, the day there means when... Uh, the Hebrew word there, we've already gone over it, is biyom, B-Y-O-W-M. And it means it can be, the context here demands that this word be when and not on the very day. Just thought I'd say that in passing. Okay, um, so here's the summary of what we've seen in this. And that is that God wanted to make sure that people would not forget his promise of blessing and cursing. And that altar that they made and the ceremony of the tribes going up on this mountain, the other ones going over here and writing all the law down. Do you think they would remember that for a long time? Do you think the kids, when they were, say, a six-year-old, even when he got old, he remembered doing that? That was the whole point. God wanted them to remember this crucial part of a relationship with God is that there is both blessing and there is cursing and you decide by your own volition what you're going to have. And he wanted them to remember that. Everything depended on their attitude towards God and His Word. That was the truth then, and it's also true now. Okay, are y'all ready to press on to a new chapter? All right. We're going to go to chapter 9 now. Uh, And the first, what I'm going to give you first, before I get right into the, the uh, scriptures, the individual scriptures, is to kind of give you a layout of the land of what's going on here. Chapters 9 and 10 deal with the central and southern campaign of Israel uh, taking over the land, the conquest of the land. And it can be divided into three parts. So here we have chapter 9 and 10 is actually a composite and it's talking about their campaign, Israel's campaign in the central and south, southern part of Canaan. And the first part deals with verses, uh, chapter, this is chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. 
They deal with the Gibeon incident. This is where trouble with the outfit called Gibeon, the Gibeonites, had to do, had started. Now, verses 3 through 27 is actually a parenthesis, so put it in your Bible. After chapter 2, you want to have an open parenthesis there, start the parenthesis. And at verse 27, you close parenthesis. Everything in between there is parenthetical. Just giving you some information. Actually, it it flows if you go from Joshua chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, and then drop down to chapter 10, uh, verse 1. That's that's the flow. But in between there, you have verses 3 through 27 that gives you information that's important, but it's parenthetical. That's all part one. Part two is verses 10, excuse me, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 27. And they deal with the result of the Gibeon incident. There is going to be, isn't there always an incident? So this is the repercussions, the fallout of the Gibeon incident. And then part three is verses 28 to the end of the chapter in chapter 10. And that has to do with the breakthrough to the south and the southern campaign. That's the layout of the land in these two chapters which work in conjunction with one another and it's a certain area of the land of Canaan that it is dealing with. What Joshua has done is militarily um, going up to the to the place to worship wasn't militarily smart. We've already gone over that. But the overall strategy was great. Here's what I'm talking about. All this is the land of Canaan. This is the northern area. It's not showing the cities on this map. And you come down, this is the southern part. This whole area here, you see? So when... They came in and struck here, even when they went up to here. What they did was form a corridor. They split the country in half, the northern from the southern part. And this is, uh, tactically speaking, this is a, this is a brilliant maneuver. Uh, the community broke the communication lines between the north and the south, which is always helpful. Plus, he, he had his logistical line of support uh, stabilized. So what he's going to do is he goes in here, he takes uh, Jericho, Ai, he goes up here to Shechem, here's Mount Ebal, Mount uh, Gezerim, he has this worship, and then he's going to head back south and he's going to take care of business here. Now, when he heads south, uh, he's already taken these cities here. What city looks like he's going to come to right here? Gibeon. And the Gibeonites were pretty nervous about this say the least. But this is called interior lines, militarily speaking, and uh, it's something that uh, uh, works. They, it's, if you can do this, split them in half and then take care of uh, one half at a time. You don't have to deal with the whole bunch at one time. That is a, a, a great plus. So he's working on what we would call um, interior lines. He split the country in half. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. There is so much more. It, we're about to get in a part in chapter 9 right off the bat, parallels, uh, I won't say typology, but at least parallels of things that are going on with Joshua that we can see in eschatology, things yet in the future. It gets real exciting here in, in just a short time if you stick with it. But just in case you're kind of fading, you start thinking, well, what does all this stuff have to do with me? Interior lines and cutting the country in half and uh, all these mountains and all. What does that have to do with me? Are you at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11? If you are in that state of mind, this verse is for you. It's actually for all of us. Now, these things, these things is referring to the Old Testament accounts. The things that were written in the Old Testament wasn't just to fill up the Bible and make it look bigger. Things in the Old Testament happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10:11 for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. <laughs> in my Libronic software, it's Bible software, one of the places I can go is a book that has all of the places where the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. And it is, it is uh, hundreds and hundreds of times. So you can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And these things were written for us, for our admonition, for us to learn from them. Listen, most of the time in the Old Testament, the people had to learn the hard way. It was recorded for us so that we can listen and learn from their mistakes. We don't have to, we don't have to learn the hard way. You have the option of learning the easy way, which is learning from their mistakes. And the ages to come, we're going to get into some eschatology if we don't run out of time, if I keep pressing on here, that is absolutely marvelous. There are a few parallels with what happened with Joshua and Israel when they were conquering the land of Canaan and with eschatology of the Bible. Satan had a stronghold on the land and would not give it up easily. The campaign to free the land from the pagans was very bloody. I see some of you ladies when, when we are talking about uh, Jericho and Ai, wipe them out, everything that breathes. Uh, men, women, children, animals, annihilate them and then burn it. Some of you kind of, kind of like this. Well, that is for one reason that is the Bible gives it to us graphically is because this is a parallel that is to something that is yet future. These chapters in the struggle of Joshua fighting is but a small version of the tribulational events that are yet to happen. Many things will happen in the tribulation that has already happened in a small way back here in Joshua. Both time periods in history usher in a kingdom the kingdom of Israel was ushered in under the, uh, into the land of Canaan in 1400 B.C. and it was accomplished by blood and many thousands were slaughtered by war. You got that picture? 
the kingdom of God. Now, that was the kingdom of Israel. They started operating as a nation. They had a geographical location. They had the law. But before they could do that, what had to happen? They had to get that deep-rooted evil that Satan had been working on for centuries out. You can't have a nation, a godly nation like Israel, uh, in an area where you have all this, so it had to be removed. Now, the kingdom of God will also be ushered into history by blood and tremendous war and conflict. Neither the kingdom of Israel nor the kingdom of God can be erected inside history until first the powers of Satan have been smashed and those in alliance with the powers of Satan have been destroyed and forcibly removed. You be, can you start to see the parallel that I'm trying to show you here? This is a parallel between what happened in Joshua in taking the land and what happened in, or what will happen in the tribulation. Now, there may be some who's not sure what I'm talking about uh, when I'm talking about the um, tribulation, so we'll take a quick gander at this. This is just a timeline of dispensations. Now, what is a dispensation? A dispensation is where God interacts with mankind in a specific way. And that, that mode of operating with, interacting with man changes over time. And so we have eternity past here. We have the age of the Gentiles, which is green here, that lasted about 2,000 years. Then we have the age of the Jews here uh, uh, that's lasted about 2,000 years. The age of the Jews started when Moses gave them the law. They wandered out in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they crossed the river. They went into the land and they established a nation. This was a dispensation. The, the Gentiles didn't have the Mosaic law. This started, see this is blue colored. And then that lasted all the way up to the cross. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, they were still in the Jewish age. They were still observing the Mosaic law. And then just a little short period, this little time frame here between the cross and this point here, which is Pentecost, actually was 50 days. After Christ was resurrected 50 days, a new age start, which is the church age. That's the age in which we're in right now. We are not under the Mosaic law. We have tremendous assets and blessings that the Jews never heard of. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are royal ambassadors. We are royal priests. Even you women are royal priests. So many things have changed. This is the age in which we're in now. And I don't know where we are, but I think we're right about here. This is going to end with the rapture. Jesus Christ is going to return, take us home with Him so we will ever be with the Lord. And where is that? What chapter? What, what book and chapter? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't know that, write it down. And don't worry about other people watching. Oh, they didn't know it. They wrote it down. <laughs> well, if they want to do that, let them do it. You'll get the blessing. They'll get the discipline. Well, that's true. I mean, you don't want to wish it on them, but they brought it on themselves. The rapture occurs, and then look, we go back to blue again. This is an intercalation. We interrupted the Jewish age. As soon as we're out of here, uh, then we're going to have the tribulational period. Now, this is the period here that is parallel with what's going on in, uh, with Joshua. You see, 
the world, at least in that area of Joshua's day, was exceedingly wicked and evil. You have no idea how horrible it was. God decided, that's where I'm going to plant my people. That's where I'm going to have the temple. This is where I'm going to have the capital of the world is going to be Jerusalem when Christ returns the second advent. All this was there. There's only one problem. You had all these scads of, of pagans that were just entrenched. And as it was in Joshua's day, the same is going to be in the tribulation. It's going to take nothing less than the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to extricate all of that corruption out of there. He is going to use force. He is going to break them just as he did in Joshua's day. It took nothing less than God's power to do it. He broke the back of Satan in order to make the area a kingdom for Israel to operate in. You got that? Now, the same thing is going to be true here. Only in the tribulation, it's going to be far worse. This is going to be the worst period that ever has been or will be. So we don't have to wring our hands and say, Oh, no, I certainly don't want to go through that. Don't worry about it. You won't be there. You'll be up here in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, for some of you, you're not too excited about that either. Come on, be honest. Everybody loves the rapture. Nobody wants to stand before Jesus Christ to be evaluated. I can't button that. I'm too fat. Okay. Uh, so a lot of people are going to be up there. And, you know, some people abhor being here as much as they would be going through here, and that's a shame. And you don't have to be. You don't have to dread either one. You don't have to dread the tribulation because you're not going to be there. You don't have to dread... dread uh, Dread the judgment seat of Christ because you can be anticipating great rewards and decorations. You can be anticipating, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You can be anticipating the uh, crown of righteousness and all the decorations and rewards and so forth. You can anticipate that. It all depends on your attitude towards God and His Word. It was the same thing back then with the Jews. It's the same thing for us now. So here's the great parallel. It's the power of God that is going to take all this together. And we're going to see. I wish I had another hour because I'm just, I'm just getting motivated, getting to the part that there's, there's so many great parallels here. We, what we're going to see is that in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, all of the kings, all these Canaanite kings are going to say, hey, we better get together because this is critical mass here. We better get together and kick these people out because they're doing real damage. They've already cut the country in half. All the kings are gathering together. You know what's going to happen right here? All the kings are going to be gathered together. And it's not going to be accident. God is going to do it. A lot of people think, oh, no, it's going to be a big battle and God better watch out because... All the kings of the earth are going to get smart and they're going to, just like they did in Joshua's day, they're going to move against the will of God. It, not so. God is bringing them there. This, this isn't happenstance. He's, he's, one reason that the tribulation takes place is because these 2,000 years, the Jews have completely rejected their Messiah. Not all of them, but the great majority of them have. And they are stiff-necked and rebellious. And it's going to take this, this horrible time of tribulation where Satan is actually going to indwell the Antichrist, 
the world is going to be unbelievably horrible at that time. It's going to take that to break them, to humble them, to look and acknowledge their Messiah that's coming from heaven. God's doing it because He loves them. Anything short of that, and they would stay in their stiff-necked rebellion. So this is the parallel here when the kings come. I'm getting ahead of myself, and I just I keep looking at the time. I don't quit looking at the time. This is going to end at the second advent. You're going to have Jesus Christ return, and He is going to take care of business. We've studied that in great detail in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3. Well, actually, we've studied this in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. The whole book is about eschatology. This is going to end when Jesus Christ returns, second advent. He is going to literally come back to planet Earth. Set, and look at this. The millennium is his kingdom. This is the kingdom of God. What Joshua and his people are setting up through God's help, through, actually through God, God's the one doing it, is the kingdom of Israel here on earth. Do you see the parallels starting to take shape here? They're wonderful parallels. After the uh, millennium is the great white throne. I'm not certain about this. There's certain scriptures that says that there is going to be a dispensation of the fullness of times and whether there's going to be another 100,000 years. Between uh, this 1,000 years and the great white throne, I don't know. We're not going to get into that right now. But eventually we have the eternity future. All that we need to recognize and have confidence in is that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back for you and for me. And it could happen at any time. And when he does, we're always going to be with the Lord. And we're going to see all this. You're not going to need a video to, to see the tribulation. Or uh, I was back in the, in the junior class this morning, and I was amazed. Uh, Fabian said that she's going to show a video of the dedication service last time to the kids, and they could see themselves up here singing. I said, well, where's the video? Video machine. She said it's in the TV. In the TV. They're making TV now with videos in them. I mean, here, I'm impressed. When you get to heaven, I don't, I don't, I'm not absolutely dogmatic on this, but I don't think we're going to need video machines. I think we can have virtual reality. If you want to say, uh, I want to go back and see what it's like at Gettysburg, well, you're going to see the actual event. And um, so we don't have to. No, we're not going to be there at the tribulation, but I'm sure we'll have all the information we have. We're on information load overload anyway, aren't we? Y'all look like you are. <laughs> I hate to see what I look like now about right long about now, because I'm I'm a bit frustrated because I want to just getting the engines going here. Some of you look like you're at the end of the trip. Now everybody's perked up. The angel of conflict continues to rage and Satan never rests. He could not penetrate the wall of protection around Joshua and the Israelites when they faithfully obeyed God's command to build the altar and worship in the middle of enemy territory. But even as the Israelites were worshiping, he was preparing a counterattack. See, Satan had that geographical area of the land sewed up. It was exceedingly evil. 
Now God is penetrating it. And even though he would love to have attacked, had to have them attack Joshua, and while they were in, in the mountains worshiping God, come in and intrude and, and, and interrupt all that and call, call, cause carnage and everything, he didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of doing it because God protected them. When you are in sync with God and you are worshiping, you are learning, and you are obeying, Satan cannot touch you. But that doesn't mean that he was at rest. Turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. Now, what, what we see in verse 1 is what was going on while they were worshiping. Again, I said Satan never rests. Joshua 9, 1. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland... Uh, by the way, underline all the kings. All the kings. It was unanimous. All the kings who were beyond the Jordan, that would be in the land of Canaan, in the hill country and in the lowland and on all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard it. They heard about Jericho and Ai and Bethel. That they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Now, who was orchestrating this? Who was behind all this? Satan himself was orchestrating it, of course. Joshua had penetrated the land, set up a beachhead. He moved west and northwest in the belly of the land. It was a vital piece of real estate. Now the reaction is not long in coming. Notice this. Up to now, the warfare had been defensive in nature. Remember, all the people would run and hide behind the walls. Now that strategy is changing, and there's going to be an attack on Israel. We're not going to see that till chapter 10. Because we have uh, 20, what is it, 25 verses that's a, a parenthetical. And there's a lot in that that we need to learn, but this is still kind of overlooking the whole thing. But now Joshua is going to be attacked by these people in chapter 10. The counterattack of Satan is not long in coming, and this is what we read in verses 1 and 2. And verse. Verse 2 reminds us of a similar event that will happen towards the end of the tribulation, which I was talking about a moment ago. These are all parallels of what's going to take place yet in the future. Look at verse 2 again. Then they will gather themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Now, this in itself is really unusual because these people, these pagans, were fiercely independent. They didn't even get along with each other all that well. And they certainly uh, didn't get together and have fellowship. These were city-states, kings in each one of these cities. And when it says that they all the kings came together in one accord, this is very unusual that these people who are normally not too pleasant to be around all are on the same page now. Does that remind you of something today? How about the Muslims, huh? They can't stand each other. I mean, they look what Saddam Hussein did to uh, Kuwait 
I mean, they're, all, they're already str- always struggling with, around each other. But it, they all come together unified when they are set their sights either on Israel or the United States. Even Turkey, you know, the Turks are not Arabs, but they are Muslim. And even the Turkey and all these other Muslim nations will all come together to go against God and His people. And that's what we see here. You see how how many parallels there are here? Isaiah, uh, just for the sake of time, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to close on these two. Isaiah chapter, get this address though. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. What is that talking about? Isaiah isn't talking about Joshua, he's talking about at the end of the tribulation, all nations of the world are going to gather against the Lord's, against God's anointed, Jesus Christ. That's, you've heard the, of the Battle of Armageddon. Actually, Armageddon is a campaign. But, and people ask, well, do you think the United States, we don't know where it is in prophecy, you think it'll go against Israel? What does it say? All nations will go against Israel. And God is going to bring them there. And look at the last of this. And they shall see my glory. They shall come and see my glory. God is going to gather all these nations that are in rebellion and stiff-necked. And they think that they can fight against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They will become toast. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 5. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all people. Just as all these pagans were uniting and coming together, that same event, that same type of thing is going to happen in that future time of the tribulational period, only on a great larger scale. Parallel right there. Well, I'm, I'm way past time. Um, we're going to... One of my favorite parts is Psalm 2. We'll get into that next time at the beginning. And it will also demonstrate the parallels that we find in Joshua. Did you, who of you, any, did any of you expect to see parallels in Joshua to such a specific extent that has to do with eschatology? Not only does it have to do with us in our day and time, it even goes beyond to the future time of what is going to take place. Wonderful book. I'm just so grateful that God has recorded this for us. Now let everyone uh, please bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're here, you're without Jesus Christ. You don't know what's going to happen when you die. It does not have to be a leap out into darkness. You can know for certain that your ticket to heaven is guaranteed, but not by anything that you do. It's all about what Christ has already done. And right here, right now, You can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in His work and His work alone. And in that moment, you have eternal life and your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. It's not what you do. You don't have to walk an aisle, raise your hand. It's all accepting the free gift of salvation that is offered to you simply by accepting, believing the Lord Jesus Christ and Him only and His work. Now, Father, thank You for this time You've given us to fellowship in Your Word. How we love Your Word. How it inspires us. We need that refreshment. 
We need that encouragement and we need the direction. We thank you for that portion that we received this morning. We pray it all in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.